in the book of Revelation then, as Steve just read 17 and 18. We, uh, we started there last week, and so if you missed last week, the, uh, the first part of the message is on the web, and um, as in the bulletin as well, um, I set up a, uh, a web page this week. For those who know and care, it's called a .xml. Anyways, but it's an RSS. That's another one of those um, kind of things out there. Anyways, I think if I understand everything right, it means that you it's podcasted now. So you can actually set your pointer to um, www.familybiblechurch.org backslash thisweek.xml. And then each week's message, Lord willing, will, will be there, assuming that I, I do that. I accomplish that every Sunday. But anyways, so if you ever miss, you know people who are interested in it, it's there. But last week, we were looking at Revelation 17 and 18. It took a, a, a greater portion of the time, and we decided um, in the middle of our looking at the seven heads that um, it was wise to consider finishing it up this week. And so if you have the sermon note sheet, you'll note that this week's sermon note sheet is exactly the same as last week's, except for the fact that I filled in the blanks um, coming through the description of the great harlot and identity of the beast for the seven heads. And so I'd like to start with a, a quick review um, of that to bring us back into where we are. Um, there's a lot of information that's here. And remember, I, I stated that um, it's probably the hardest message um, in the book of Revelation outside of declaring when I believe the, the rapture or the harpazo of the church would be because here is where I begin to dis- declare what some of these beasts are and or some of these heads and stuff are. And uh, Marcia said to me a week ago Saturday when she was when she called from Pennsylvania, she said, do you ever think that you'd be where you are right now? And I said, no, I, didn't, I really didn't think so. But, um, but it's amazing after all the study and stuff that there is so much that is clear in the word of God that if we take the time just to study it. So we considered, first of all, the description of the great harlot. And as we went through the description of the harlot, we saw that she was one who was going to sit on many waters. Uh, and we saw that below um, in verse 15 of chapter 17 that those waters were described as being Um, peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And so the idea of sitting on something as well as we saw on the beast, with her sitting on the beast later, that the idea of sitting on something is to have authority over something as well. And so the idea is then this harlot is going to have some sort of authority or some sort of sway, persuasive power, whatever you want to call it, over these nations and peoples and uh, tongues and multitudes. Secondly, we saw that she seduced kings and inhabitants of the earth. Okay? that she was able to hold some seductive power over them. She thirdly sat on the scarlet beast, which we saw was full of names of blasphemies and had seven heads and ten horns, which we will be talking about in just a moment. She arrayed herself in purple and scarlet and adorned herself with gold, precious stones, and pearls, which meant that she had great what? Wealth, great wealth, great luxury, and loved to display it, put it on display, okay? Um, fifth, she had in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And we talked about a golden cup by itself um, was reflective of something that would be pure, something that would be holy, something that would be nice, so, you know, something that was uh, beneficial. However, this golden cup was full of um, was uckiness, was full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. An abomination is that which is a stench to God, um, fornication as well. Sixth, she had a name written on her forehead, and that name was 
mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abomination of the earth. And so we talked about how then her name, Babylon the Great, and we saw um, later on as we consider a review of the seven heads, um, is consistent with this theme of Babylon. Babylon is being used many times here in Revelation 13, 14, 17, 18, um, referring to this beast, this uh, nation, this kingdom that will arise later on. And so we're also told, though, that she's not just Babylon the Great, but that she is the mother of harlots. The L is missing there, I think. Mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. And uh, the mother is seen to be the source of something. She is the one who gave, gives birth to everything. So we talk about Eve being the mother of all living things. Well, this um, harlot, the great harlot, is the mother of all harlotries and the, the mother of all abominations on the earth. And we believe that that is spiritual speaking as well, which we'll talk about again later on, hopefully. Finally, she was drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, which means that she was all for what? Persecuting the church, persecuting those who believe in Jesus Christ. And again, we talk about the fact that the word martyr is actually the word for a witness. Um, that in Acts 1.8, when it says that you shall be witnesses, that's the word martyr. Um, the word martyreo is to witness, to give a testimony, and it's a, it's a legal term. Um, and so it's like being placed upon the, the, um, the witness stand. Now, whether these will be ones who actually are taken to court, whether they're ones who are um, killed in the streets, that remains to be seen, but they are witnesses of Jesus Christ. And uh, we know, using the word today, because of what we see here, that there are ones who actually are going to die because of their testimony of Jesus Christ. That was the description of the great harlot. Then we moved into the identity of the beast, which is now where I don't just state what the, the Bible stated, but now I've got to start defining, if you would. Um, and so we talked about in this beast, we saw that the beast um, had seven heads and ten horns. As we looked at the seven heads, we considered the fact that what it states about the seven, the seven heads is that five were, verse 10, it says, there are also seven kings, five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short while or a little, a few, is what the oligos is, is the word that's there. And so we sell the five that have fallen, and we talk about these being kings. We're told that there are mountains, but we saw back um, as well that the term mountain is used to refer to kingdoms and to kings as well. And so these refer to seven kings or kingdoms. The five that were, and this is from the perspective of John as he's given this prophecy, and we said that the one that is was a no-brainer, that the, the empire that was when John was being given this was Rome. And so what were the five kingdoms that occurred before Rome? Well, very clearly that's Greece, Assyria, Babylon, oh, not Greece, I did it again, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. Okay, and I think I switched that to Egypt on your sermon note sheet this time. It still says Greece? I, I, thought I, I thought I changed it. I guess I didn't change it before I printed them out. Anyways, so yes, it should be Egypt. Okay, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. Okay, and so um, each of those had interplay with Israel as well um, as they go through in, in, in conquering Israel. And so those are the, the, the five that have fallen. And the one that is... Okay, and I, I kept the, the outline on there for you. You can look at that. Um, the one that is was Rome. And we saw that Rome actually continued to 1453, the political empire of Rome, 
But then there was also the, the western leg that was reincarnated, if you would, um, which was revived as the Holy Roman Empire with Charlemagne in 800 A.D. And then in 811 A.D., the Eastern Roman Empire, which was a, a, a full continuation from Constantine and, and the, the, the Roman Empire itself, recognized the, the Western Roman Empire as the Holy Roman Empire. And that Holy Roman Empire continued until 1806, when Francis II uh, abolished it, when he abdicated his throne and he abolished the, the empire. And so then we said then, okay, so after this one, there was going to be one that would rise up for a little time, for a short time, for an oligos, for a, just a brief period. And we then said, well, what nation is there, what world empire is there that, that began at that time frame? And my comment is the, it's the United States. The United States began officially in 1776, but the War of 1812 and the Civil War were critical to us um, actually being established as um, our own national power um, when we were fully broke free from the, the tentacles of, of Britain and became our own power. And in this uh, past century, um, since that time, we have been the power um, that really shakes the world. And I don't say that pridefully, but it's a fact. Um, we'll talk about this in a moment, um, about how the, the world has changed um, over the last 100 years. But one thing that has been continuous in those last 100 years is the U.S. dominance um, throughout the, the different um, uh, events of the world that the United States has continued on there. Um, but slowly right now we are becoming the tail and not the head. The eighth, then we're told, is an eighth. And I said last week, I said it's really interesting because we don't normally think of an eighth. We think of the seven heads. But we're told that there is an actual eighth kingdom, an eighth kingdom. And this eighth kingdom is actually one of the seven from before. But we're told that it's one of the seven that were before, that was, and is not. And so therefore, it could not be the seventh kingdom, which is the U.S., because that wouldn't make sense that it was an eighth kingdom, right? And it's, it's not the Rome, Roman Empire, which is what classically we hold to as some dispensationalists. We think it's a renewal of the Roman Empire, but it's, it, it wasn't at that point. So it's one that was, but isn't right now. And so, therefore, it had to be one of the five. It had to be Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, or Greece. But then we looked in the book of Isaiah um, that it could not be Greece. Uh, Egypt or Syria, not, that's number two, so if you have Greece or Syria, that should be Egypt or Syria, because in Isaiah 19, verses 23 to 25, it states that Israel will be one of three, and that there will be a highway in, in the millennium, and that there will be a highway that runs from Egypt to Assyria, from Assyria to Egypt, that Egypt will be called my people. Uh, Assyria is given a special name as well, and then Israel is the beloved. And so... Um, so it can't be Egypt and it can't be Assyria because those two nations will be one of three, will be two of three along with Israel during the millennium. Amazing thing that God um, has declared that. And so that leaves then Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. I believe it must be Babylon. And if you would, let's turn to Jeremiah 51, okay? And we're going to use this as our picking it up and, and wetting our, our, our lips, if you would as we transition into the ten kings, or the ten horns. Okay? In Jeremiah 51, verse 1 to 9, 
we read, Thus saith Yahweh, Behold, I will raise up against Babylon, against those who dwell in Lebchmai, a destroying wind. And I will send winnowers to Babylon, who shall winnow her and empty her land. For in the day of doom they shall be against her all around. Against her let the archer bend his bow and lift himself up against her in his armor. Do not spare her, young men. Utterly destroy all her army. Thus the slain shall fall in the land of Chaldeans, and those thrust through in her streets. For Israel is not forsaken, nor Judah. By his God, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Shabbat, though their land was filled with sin against the Holy One of Israel, flee from the midst of Babylon, and everyone save his life. Do not be cut off in her iniquity, for this is the time of Yahweh's vengeance. He shall recompense her. Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunk. The nations drank her wine. Therefore the nations are deranged. Sound familiar so far? Babylon has suddenly fallen and been destroyed. Wail for her. Take balm for her pains. Perhaps she may be healed. We would have healed Babylon, but she is not healed. Forsake her and let us go, everyone to his own country. For her judgment reaches to the heaven and is lifted up to the sky. We're told that in the midst of this destruction that, that God was, was bringing on Babylon, that he was going to bring one day to Babylon, there is actually a split prophecy that's, that's happening here. God declares that he's going to utterly destroy Babylon. But the utter destruction has never happened to Babylon. God, God declares that, that, that Babylon was going to go away and that the people would love to do what? To revive it, to heal it. But they weren't able to do that. But God was going to one day utterly destroy. It's interesting to note that Babylon, and we'll talk about this again in a moment, has never been utterly destroyed. How did Babylon fall? The, the Medo-Persians did. The Persians walked under the gates. They, they diverted the Euphrates River. And they had a band of army uh, north of the city and an army below the south of the city. And on December 25th, or what we refer to as December 25th, when they were celebrating um, the, the, their pagan feast, um, everybody was drunk, and they diverted the water, and the Persians walked in and destroyed the city without a quote-unquote shot being fired, if you would. Um, there was no resistance at all. They walked in, and they took over the city. That was the same night in which Daniel was translating many, many Tekwa Uparsim. Remember when uh, Belshazzar was having his feast and they were using the, the, the cups, the goblets from the, the temple and, and God's hand came out and wrote on the wall and his loins were loosened, which means that he, you know, he, uh, he, he kind of dirtied himself there. He was, he was that nervous. I, I think I, any one of us would be kind of filled with amazement if we saw the hand of God come out and start writing on the wall. And so nobody was able to, to interpret it, so they went and got Daniel, who was a forgotten um, person in the kingdom at that time. And so he came in and said, many, many Tekoa Farsim, you've been measured, you've been measured, you've been found wanting, and now the Persians um, are going to destroy you. And that night, as he was interpreting it, the Persians were in fact coming into the, into the city. And so they took over, they became the world empire without having to... to to even fight against Babylon. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? Now, Babylon did uh, get sacked numerous times after that, but it was not a result of Babylon rising to power. Babylon was just a, a, a 
a chief city of the Persians. It was a chief city of, of the Greeks. And so there were many um, others who vied for to be a world empire, and they fought against Babylon, the city of Babylon, and, and Babylon became sacked at different times, but it was not as a kingdom. The kingdom of Babylon was never sacked. It was never destroyed. It never felt the full wrath of God from, from the perspective that we read today. So um, I believe it's, it's Babylon, based upon this, that Babylon will be uh, revived once more. It will be there. And in that, back in Revelation 17, we read about this beast not only just having seven heads, but we read about this beast having ten horns. Now, what are, who are the ten horns? What do we know about the ten horns? First of all, back in chapter 17, we know that the ten horns are ten kings who have received, who have received no kingdom. Okay? So at the point of, of John receiving this prophecy, would he know who the ten kings were? And the answer is no. They hadn't received a kingdom yet. So there was no idea at that point who they would be. Secondly, we're told that they will receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. Now the question is, who's the beast? Who's the beast that they're going to receive authority with for one hour? Okay, Christopher. Well, Satan, but Satan is behind the power. Remember, he's the dragon. He, back in chapter 13, 12 and 13, he's the one who is the, is the dragon who gives his authority to the beast that comes up out of the, okay? And then the beast has the, the, the seven heads and the ten horns, but specifically which part of the beast are we talking about here? Not, not necessarily the harlot. One of the harlots sitting on, which I believe is the whole beast. Okay, this is, the, I think, just to help you, it's the eighth. It's the eighth head. Okay, which remember there's seven heads, but then there's an eighth that's going to come from the seven. Right, that is the representation, if you would, of the beast of that time. It's the eighth kingdom. Okay, now we haven't gotten to what the eighth kingdom is going to be yet. But I told you that I think the eighth kingdom is who? Babylon. Okay. So at this point, okay, these ten kings are going to be receiving authority along with Babylon for one hour. Okay. What are we also told about these um, these kings? These ten kings. They're going to be united. They're going to be of one mind. Okay. They're going to be united in their purpose, if you would. Okay. In their thought process. Fourth, they're going to give their power and their authority to the beast. So even though they are going to be granted power at some, in some realm, okay, they are going to give turnaround and give that authority and give their power, lend it to this eighth kingdom, this beast. The idea is that this beast is going to be powerless without these ten coming in behind it. Do you understand? It, it supports the whole process. They will make war with the lamb. Now this is really interesting. They're going to make war with who? Jesus himself. Okay? Again, I want to stop and I want to come back to bring all this into context. When is all of this occurring? When is all of this occurring? We've been spending months in the book of Revelation. The last three and a half years. That's exactly right. We have got to keep this in our mind. There are so many people out there today looking for the eighth beast. When will the eighth beast occur? After three and a half years. Okay, we'll talk about this in a moment. Okay, 
So these 10 kings in the last three and a half years, okay? There's a lot of, lot of talk about the 10 kings being the European Union. I've talked about times about the potential of it being the, um, the um, Security Council of the United Nations. One thing we do know is that we don't know. Does that make sense? Okay. And that, but what we do know is that they will be, and they'll receive their power. And when they receive their power for this one hour, what are they going to be united in? <laughs> Against the Lamb. They're going to be united for pro-beast and anti-Christ. Antichrist. They're going to be a opposed to the Lamb. But we're told that the Lamb's going to do what? In Revelation 17, they're going to oppose the Lamb. They're going to war against the Lamb. But what's going to what's going to what's going to be the end result? The Lamb's going to overcome them. Isn't that exciting? What does it tell me? What's whose side am I on? I'm on the Lamb side. I'm on, which means I'm on the I'm on the winning side. I'm on the winning side. I don't have to watch the rest of the game to know how it's going to turn out. I know how it's going to turn out. The nations are going to rise up against the Lamb. They're going to seek to destroy him. But what's he going to do? He's going to destroy them. Lord willing, next week we'll talk about Armageddon, and we'll talk about that victory. They're going to war against the Lamb, but the Lamb's going to overcome them. They're going to hate the harlot. Now, isn't this interesting? They're going to hate the harlot. Now, who's the harlot? She's, she's part of the, the Babylonian process, right? So she's, her mystery, mystery name is Babylon the Great. And yet they're a supporter of the beast who I've already said potentially is Babylon. So how does, this, how does all this fit together? Well, we'll see this in a moment. But within each kingdom, which if each nation, which within a people, there are three different natures. There are three different uh, components if you look at society. There is a political component, yes. There is a religious component. And there is a commercial component, if you would, a Commerce, and so in every nation that's out there, you've got you got politics, you got a leader, you got money, and then somewhere along the line in there, there's some sort of a spiritual thing that's coagulating them together. Okay, and so what do we know about the harlot? Well, she is a spiritual side of things, and what do we know about religion as a whole? Well, religion has been used by man to do what? To justify or manipulate, justify a lot of things or manipulate people, to be able to to get people to do things. I mean, a lot of jihad right now, right? There are a lot of Muslims who are committing suicide, okay? For what purpose? P politics blended together with religion. Do, do you get it? I mean, think about it. There, there are. You may die for politics, okay? I mean, you may you may go in 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 defense of your country, but tie it together with a religious theme that you are doing God a service. Isn't that what the Crusades were all about? I mean, Christians have, have done the same thing, okay? And so, but what has happened to man every time religion has been used as a, as a tool of seduction or manipulation? How has man received it? Not very well. And, and they hate it. So we look at the Reformation period as we've gone through all the reform, you know, the videos and stuff like that. 
wasn't the, the Roman church doing that, manipulating and, and using it as a, as a tool over the heads of the people? You know, even over the heads of the kings. Remember we saw when um, Frederick, when, the, when the, um, the bishop was talking to, to Frederick Vogsberg, he said, you know, surely, you know, that you're not going to do anything to the king, to the, to the ruler of the land. He's, well, no, we, we can't usurp your power, but the king certainly can be excommunicated. Which meant what? We can send you to hell. You can reign here, but we've got you for eternity. And so what was the Roman church doing? They were manipulating. That's exactly right. And so how did the kings of the earth at that time like the manipulation? They chafed at the neck for the moment that they could rid themselves of her, of her power. And the same thing is going to happen. It says that they will hate the harlot. They will make her desolate and naked. They'll eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Why? Because God had put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose. Okay? Now, with all that being in mind, let's go to the larger portion here, and that is the identity of this Babylon. Okay? Um, because this Babylon is the final kingdom, and it is really the one that everybody wants to know. Well, who is it? You know, everybody's looking toward this thing. And there are a lot of... Um, debates going on in the world out there who Babylon is. Um, people want to say it's the United States. Um, you know, there are indicators for it being that. There are people who want to say that it's the United Nations. There are people who want to say that it's the, the, the European um, Union. There are people who want to say that it's the, the, the Muslims as a whole, that it's a, a figurative to, to use toward Muslims. And There are people who say that it is Iraq because of the term Babylon. But Equally, with all those things that people have said that it is, there are a lot of people who say that it can't be all the others. You know, that's exactly right. And so the arguments against Iraq is the fact that there's clearly, there's no way that Iraq could ever be the power that it once was. Look at where it's at right now. Da -de -da -de -da -da -da. You know, it's amazing how many, um, how many um, um, defenses, how many um, evidences, my mind is blanking my words here right now, um, in, a, in a jury or in a trial you give evidence, but they are points of evidence. Anyways, you, 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 I think you're tracking with me there. What, Ben? That's exactly what I was going to say. That's exactly right. We forget, though, to look at history. Let's just look in the last 100 years. World War I. Prior to World War I, what was one of the, the biggest empires? The Ottoman Empire, the Turkish Empire. Post-World War I, there was no Ottoman Empire. Amazing. How quickly? How long did the, the First World War last? Four years, five years? Anyways, ten or less years if you put everything together, okay? So, where was the German Empire? You had Kaiser and everything, but after World War I, the German Empire was, was dismantled. However, like you said, just 30 years later, there was one who arose whose name was Hitler, Adolf Hitler, who was able to, again, bring the Germanic people together again. And so, and then you had World War II that began because Germany was beginning to, to um, methodically take over the entire European continent, right? 
not until, again, the United States, as we talked about before, got involved. I mean, honestly, there is a lot of conjecture that if the United States would not have gotten involved, Europe would be the German Empire all over again. So pre-World War II compared to post-World War II, what do we see? A totally different um, Europe. It's an amazing thing. What we saw when we went through the seal judgments or the seal events and what we saw when we went through the trumpet events, do you remember that, the trumpet judgments? Sounds like there is going to be clearly a economic earthquake where there's going to be a quarter wheat for a day's wages and two quarts of barley for a day's wages, which means that there's going to be a collapse of the world economy, or at least part of the world's economy, but I think it's probably the whole world economy. As a result of that, we saw that there was going to be what looks to be potentially like nuclear warfare, some major catastrophe um, conflict on the earth, whether it involves nuclear or not, I would have a hard time believing at this phase that it would not, that there's not some rogue nation that will press the nuclear button and, and cause that war to be a nuclear war, based upon the different things we read there. I, I don't know that for a fact it's going to happen in the future, so I, I don't know that, but based upon what we read and what we see today, something like that will happen. There may be something worse that they've developed by then that will be involved. In as a result of that, as well, we're told that a third of the world is going to be destroyed. Okay? There are some who conjecture that that third of the, of the landmass could be North America and South America, because as you total up the landmass of the world, North America and South America is one third of it. I don't know. We'll see, you know, hopefully there'll be a box seat. We'll look at it from above, and we'll see how it all plays out. But think about it. If there is a third world war as it is based upon what we've seen just in the last two world wars and we could go on with all the other wars that there have been there will be a totally different look to the world than we know right now the problem with many of the interpretations of prophecy is that they are being interpreted with the glasses of today whatever today is when the interpreter does it so back in the 1800s, very clearly, the United States at that point wasn't the world empire that it has been over the last 100 years. You would never say the United States potentially at that point was one of these, these kings. Okay? If Christ should tarry for another 1,000 years, my interpretation, if I'm still here, I won't be, but if I would, it may, may change as well because of what we see. But based upon what I see in history, based upon what I see in prophecy, I believe Jesus is coming in my lifetime. I really do believe that. And based upon what I see, I believe that this is it. Now, what do I know then about this eighth king, going back to this eighth king, because as we come into this Babylon, was that this, this eighth, or the seventh, I'm sorry, the seventh head was only going to be there for what? Not in an hour. Those are the ten kings, but a short period, an oligos, a very few, a very small time. Now, you can say two sides there. First of all, that it's only going to have a small time to reign, but the other side is, does it go away at the end of that small time, or is it supplanted? All the other kingdoms were supplanted. Okay, They may have been able to remain, but they were amalgamated into the, the next king world empire. Does that make sense? Okay, so, so coming into this then, this Babylon, okay, who is this 
eighth kingdom. Who is this eighth one? Well, again, I think it's Babylon. It's Babylon itself. Okay. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that I believe it's Iraq. Okay. It says that I believe it's Babylon. Now, we'll talk about that real quickly here. Okay. Let's look at the history of Babylon. I want you to turn back to Genesis chapter 10. Okay. Where we see the beginning of Babylon. In Genesis chapter 10, begin at verse 8. This is the genealogy of, of Noah's sons. And we're told, Cush begot Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before Yahweh. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before Yahweh. And at the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. We know that as Babylon. Erech, Achad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Okay? Remember the land of Shinar, because that's where Babel began. The, the city of Babylon was in the land of Shinar. And from verse 11, we're told that from that land, he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Er, and Kala. In resin between Nineveh and Kala, that is the principal city. And so we go on and we read continue of Nimrod's expansions then, okay? And so this origins in the land of Shinar, Shinar the Babylon began in the land of Shinar. It was founded by, it was built by a man named Nimrod, okay? Nimrod was the mighty hunter. He was the great, uh, the, the word there actually means that he was the, the great man, okay? I mean, he was the, the guy who, who was in charge of all these things. And so he was the world leader of that time. He was the one who had this great expansion. He built Babylon, many other great cities, and he also built Nineveh, which you heard as well, which was the, 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 uh, the capital of Assyria. Exactly. Isn't that neat? This guy has, was, was involved in all these initial things. Now, turn the page or stay on the same page, turn to the next chapter of Genesis where we read the next thing that we read about um, Babel or Babylon. In verse 1 we said, we read, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. Why? Because they all came from Noah. Okay, You had Noah and his wife, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives. Eight people on the boat. They came out, everybody descended from them. So they all had one, one language, right? One speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for a stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the whole face of the earth. Now, we have a little bit more detail given to us about how Nimrod went and built this city of Babel. What are we told were motivations in the building of this world empire? Say again. To make a name for themselves. Okay, that's political, I would think. Okay. Say again. To keep them from spreading out. That's, that's coagulating the politics. That's a, a, a nation. But what were they building? A tower. And what was the tower? What was the purpose of the tower? To reach up into the heavens. 
This is what's called a ziggurat. A ziggurat is a is a um, is a a building that was built with steps, with with um, floors, if you would. But it was almost like pyramidical in its going to a point at the top because that's how they had to build that. And they were dedicated to a god or a goddess. Okay, there are some that actually had each level dedicated to a different god. And so here in Babylon, what they were doing was they was the beginning of organized false worship. They were building a, a ziggurat. They wanted to be gods to themselves. They wanted to be apart from God. They didn't need God. They had it all. They were all together. They had one, one language. They were unstoppable. In fact, we read, then continuing on in chapter 11, verse 6, that the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they have all one language, and this is what they have begun to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore the name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. God says, looky, I see what they're about ready to do, and so I'm going to put a stop to it. And so God comes down, and he confuses the language in order to put an end to this part. Not only did God confuse the languages as a barrier to this world order, but we're told that in the days of Peleg, chapter 10, verse 25, that Peleg's name was called Peleg because in his days the earth was divided. Now, again, people say that the Bible is not a science book, but it's amazing how many little details that the, the Bible has. We call that today, what, Kate? Remember I asked you about the, the name? Yeah, the tectonic plates are happening, but what did we call when the earth was one? Pangea, Panagea, okay? And so this is all about Panagea because the earth was, at this point, one. And because of the tectonic plates and the, and the separation of it, during the days of Peleg, the earth was divided. Christmas. That part of the, it was a result of the flood. That's exactly right. Okay. It, it could be. There's debate on the scientific. The point, though, is that that there was one continent that was there. Okay. And that when the earth erupted because of the the flood, right, a lot of catastrophic events began to happen. Earthquakes began to happen. Tetronic plates began to, to collide. Okay? And when all these things occurred, the dividing of the continents, what we refer to as continents today, began to happen. Okay? And so you have this separation that happens as well. Again, God separating people so that there was no, not this one world government that happened. Interesting to note that Abraham, or Avram, came from where? land of Ur, okay? And we're told as well when we read there in chapter 11 that when they came off of the, the boat, um, Noah and his sons and their descendants began to travel from um, from Ararat down to the, the land of Shinar, down to Ur. And so I believe Noah, um, because he lived 350 years, it's amazing if you do a uh, chronology, I challenge you to do this sometime, chronology of the Bible, um, that Noah actually lived while Abraham was on the earth. Abraham was called when he was 75 years old and um, that Noah was actually living while Abraham was on the earth. We don't think about that. Shem was on the, was on the earth while um, Abraham was over already in, um, in the land of Canaan. 
So it's just an amazing thing. We don't think about those things. But if you do a chronology, it's, it's fun stuff that you'll find out. So, but as a whole, this is the origin of what we know as Bab Babylon. It's interesting that its name in the Akkadian, okay, means the, the, the gateway to the gods. But in Hebrew, it's, it was in, in Akkadian, it's Babalu. But in Hebrew, they brought it over and they called it Babel, which means confusion. <laughs> confusion. And the Jews like to do that as a lot, you know, like especially like with uh, Beelzebub and Beelzebul, you know, um, to make the, the Baal the Lord of the Flies rather than the God of Gods. So, and so here we have its name meaning confusion, okay? And then we have its current condition. Um, in 2000, September 2003, there was established in the city of Babylon, and let me see, even go before that, prior to September 2003, um, Saddam Hussein sought to begin rebuilding Babylon. He wanted to, to build, the, um, build it up for that it would become his capital of his world empire, okay? This concept of Nebuchadnezzar and Nimrod has never gone away. In fact, that ziggurat, that Tower of Babel, I forgot to mention this, it's kind of fun stuff, that Nebuchadnezzar rebuilt it. And he built it, it was 295 feet, 295 feet high. It was eight stories high. It was incredible. It was one of these wonders that he was building along with the Hanging Gardens and everything else. And it was dedicated to Marduk, the, the, the god, um, the god Marduk as well. And so, an interesting thing, so Nebuchadnezzar rebuilt that Tower of Babel um, during his days. And so, Saddam Hussein had the same designs, the same desires. He wanted to be the Nebuchadnezzar of, of our day, which was really the Nimrod of our day as well. And so, um, but that was, that was done away with in September 2003. Um, as part of the um, Desert Storm and the Desert Shield stuff, um, Babylon became Camp Babylon. And there was a multinational division. South Central Iraq would be headquartered in the amphitheater at Babylon. Um, the camp would be home to a number of coalition countries supporting Operation Iraqi Freedom, including Poland, Spain, United Kingdom, France, and Germany, all under the command of the Multinational Defense Force um, Southeast. Two years later, a year and a half later, in January 2005, the Polish forces transferred the control of B Camp Babylon, if you would, to the Iraqi Cultural Ministry. Now you say, okay, that's a big deal. This year, Babylon is starting to take a renewed interest as well. Both in the Washington Post and New York Times has been, have been covering stories on it. And, and this is from the New York Times, May 3rd, 2009, where it says that a $700,000 project by the World Monuments Fund, which is going to be financed by our State Department, by the U.S. State Department, was supposed to address both cons conservation and tourism at Babylon, but has not yet begun work at the site. We, even as a country, are interested in the revitalization of Babylon. Interesting. People say, no, it can't be. Well, honestly, it can be. Who knows what the next 10 years could hold, the next 20 years, 30 years, I mean, again, 100 years. I mean, who knows when crisis is going to come? We don't know the day or the hour. But the reality is, if the world put its mind to it right now, how quickly could we do it? How quickly do we mass troops in Iraq, Ryan? Pretty quick, huh? Less than a year, okay? And already, even in the aftermath of the wars, we've been building schools and, and everything else, assisting. Think about what we did for Japan in the heels of World War II. Could you imagine what could happen on the heels of a World War III? 
Now, the mystery of Babylon. How could Babylon be the center of world dominance again? Well, first of all, let's talk about the Bible. Okay? Let's not conjecture at first, but let's talk about the Bible. I believe that we take the Bible what? Literally. That's exactly right. Literally. And so, what does the book of Revelation literally say will be the last kingdom? Babylon. There are places in the scriptures where God uses Sodom and Gomorrah, God uses Egypt, God uses the term Assyria, God uses different terms to describe different people. But God chooses to use the term here, Babylon. Babylon. And so in our local context, uh, meaning the book of Revelation, very clearly we are told that this kingdom is referred to as Babylon. In chapters 14, chapter 16, chapter 17, chapter 18, three times in chapter 18, okay? Um, I think very clearly there's an indicator then that it is going to be Babylon. Now, could I be wrong? Could it be figurative? Yes, 100%. When will we know? When it happens. <laughs> okay. So it hasn't happened. But based upon what I, the hermeneutic, the, the way of studying and interpreting scripture that I have, I would say that it has to be Babylon, even if I don't what? Understand how we can get there. That's exactly right. Okay, The greater context, this is really exciting. What is going to happen at this, this place, this Babylon? What are we told in Revelation 13 was going to happen and then as well in 14? Do you remember there was going to be two beasts? There was the first beast and the second beast. The first beast, we were told, was a false prophet. And the false prophet was going to do what? He was going to point everybody to the second beast, right? Okay? And and in doing that, how is he going to point everybody to the second beast? What, what was he going to do to get everybody's attention there? No, he wasn't going to re resurrect them. He was going to build something. He was going to build an idol, a monument. Not necessarily a monument, though, but it's going to be a, a representation, and everybody was going to have to come to this idol and bow down and worship. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Ah, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego story. But it wasn't just about Shadrach, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It was really about who? Nebuchadnezzar, that's right, who was full of pride. And do you know where the idol originally came from that Nebuchadnezzar built? Bet you do. Where did he ever see uh, a, a, a statue, an idol that was... Daniel's vision. It really wasn't Daniel's vision. Whose vision was it? It was Nebuchadnezzar's. Nebuchadnezzar, remember, Nebuchadnezzar had this, and he had he wanted to have it be interpreted, and nobody could interpret it. But Daniel asked God, and God gave him the dream and the interpretation, and he came to Daniel and said, oh, the most high, you know, live forever, you know. And so he comes to Nebuchadnezzar, and he tells Nebuchadnezzar, you saw it had the head of gold, it had the, the arms and chest of silver, it had the, the, the bronze legs, it had the iron and the, the feet. It was iron and clay mixture, right? And so... Nebuchadnezzar gets lifted up in his pride later on, and he sees that he is what? He's a head of gold. I mean, everything else is just inferior to him. And so he's, whether he's talked into it or whether he does it himself, who knows, he decides that he's going to make this gargantuous uh, idol, statue, monument, whatever you want to call it, and have everybody bow down to it. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't. And because they don't, they're thrown into the, the furnace of fire, uh, we're told that one like the Son of Man, 
probably Jesus, comes and walks with them in the fiery furnace. The, the ropes are burnt off, but not a, not a hair in their heads is singed. Nebuchadnezzar looks in, and he says, oh, I can't believe it. You guys, come on out. What's really impressive is that the soldiers who threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in, they died because of the, 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 the intensity of the heat of the fire. So the guys who were just standing there who didn't go into the flames, they died because of the heat of the flames. But the ones who were thrown into the fire, nothing happens to them at all. So where did all that occur? In Babylon. Isn't that interesting? And so here we are in the book of Revelation, and we're told that the exact same thing is going to happen. I find that as being more than a coincidence. We're told as well, in the prophetical context, turn back to Isaiah 13. Isaiah 13. Now, this is exciting because Isaiah prophesied during the days of Azariah, who we know as Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now, what do we know about the world during the days of, of their reign? Babylon was not yet a world empire. Assyria predominantly was toward the end of it. That's exactly right. Egypt was still hanging out there a little bit to the point that Sennacherib could say, hey, why do you try? Don't, don't, don't trust in, in Egypt, that broken reed. Okay? Assyria was the primary one. Because of time, I'm going to tell you later, Christopher, okay? Let me, let me just keep flying on. You just did it in Sunday school today? It's neat how things work together, huh? Okay, so here in Isaiah 13, then, we read, beginning of verse 1, the burden against Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. Lift up a banner on, high, on the high mountain, raise your voice to them, Wave your hand that they may enter the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my sanctified ones. I have also called my mighty ones for my anger, those who rejoice in my exaltation. The, no the noise of a multitude in the mountains, like that of many people, a tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of the nations gathered together. Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, musters an army for battle. They come from a far country, from the end of the earth, the Lord in his weapons of indignation to destroy the whole land. Well, for the day of Yahweh is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will be limp, every man's heart will melt, and they will be afraid. Pangs and sorrows will take hold of them. They will be as in pain like a woman in childbirth. They will be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. Behold, the day of Yahweh comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate. He will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light, the sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. I will punish the world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud. I will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a mortal more rare than fine gold, a man more than the golden wedge of Ophir. Therefore I will shake the heavens, and the earth will move out of her place, in the wrath of Yahweh of hosts, and in the day of his fierce anger. Does this sound like anything that we're talking about lately? I mean, this talk like during the days of, of Hezekiah, does this sound more like the end time book of Revelation? End time. Who's he talking to about? Babylon, right? So let's skip down, because of time, to chapter 14. 
It says, for, for Yahweh will have mercy on Jacob, and, I will, and will still choose Israel and settle them in their own land. The strangers will be joined with them, and they will cling to the house of Jacob. Then people will take them and bring them into their place, and the house of Israel will possess them for servants and maids in the land of Yahweh. They will take them captive, whose captives they were, and rule over their oppressors. It shall come to pass in the day Yahweh gives you rest from your sorrow and from your fear in the hard bondage in which you were made to serve, that you will take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, now when all this is going to go on, right, then this proverb is going to be taken up. I bet you guys know this proverb. How the oppressor has ceased, the golden city has ceased, Yahweh has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers, who struck the people in wrath with a continual stroke, who ruled the nations in anger, is persecuted and no one hinders. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. Indeed, the cypress tree rejoiced over you, and the cedars of Lebanon saying, since you were cut down, no woodsman has come up against us. You say, no, I, I really haven't heard all that. Really, we'll continue on with this and drop down to verse 12 in all this, this, this uh, proverb here. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit in the mount of the congregation on the farthest side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. Those who, you, who see you will gaze at you and consider you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of its prisoners? All the kings of the nations, all of them sleep in glory, everyone in his own house. But you are cast out of your grave like an abominable branch, like the garment of those who are slain. And we can continue on with it for sake of time. I can't. Who's being talked about here? Babylon. This is many years before Babylon would ever be a world empire. And the king of Babylon, again, in this description, is end times. And this end time king of Babylon is being referred to as the personification of who? Lucifer, who is Satan. And so there's going to be this embodiment of Satan on the earth, who we already know from Revelation 13 and 14. Who is going to reign on the earth? Where? In Babylon. Babylon. Zechariah. Turn to Zechariah 5. If that's not compelling enough, read Zechariah 5. And again, could all this be allegorical? It could be allegorical. But I don't see why to take something allegorically unless something tells me to take it allegorically or figuratively. But rather... I'll take the Bible literally until um, there is something that's told me otherwise. In Zechariah 5, beginning at verse 5, it says, the, Then the angel who talked with me came out and said to me, Lift your eyes now and see what is this that goes forth. So I asked, What is it? And he said, It's a basket. That's nice. It's a basket. It's a basket going forth, he said. This is their resemblance throughout the earth. Here is a lead disc lifted up, a, a, a lead top lifted up, and this is a woman sitting inside the basket. Oh, so it's not just a basket, but there's a, there's a woman inside the basket with a lead covering on it. What, what do we know about a lead covering? It's heavy. Why do you think it's going to be heavy? To keep her in there, right? So here's a lead disc lifted up and a woman sitting inside the basket. Verse 8, then he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her down into the basket and threw the lead cover over its mouth. 
Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were two women coming with the wind in their wings, for they had the wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between the earth and heaven. So I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they carrying the basket? And he said to me, to build a house for it, where? In the land of Shinar. When it is ready, the basket will be set there on its base. What is the land of Shinar? Babylon. We don't know. I don't know how it's going to be. But Zechariah was told that sometime in the future, where it seems like it's not going to happen at all, that wickedness, abomination, is going to be headquartered where? In the land of Shinar. And so now we come to this composition, finally, the composition of Babylon. And as I said before, with every nation, there is this triple this triple component concept. There's this political side, the religious side, and the, um, the commercial side. And so we see in the book of Revelation for Babylon. In Revelation chapter 13 and 14, when we see the beast come up out of the, the, the sea, the first beast and then the second beast, and the second beast is there, and it says that nobody can buy and sell without the mark of the beast until they get But we're told at that point that that beast at that moment was had authority and the purpose of 13 and 14 was to talk about the political Babylon, to talk about how the political Babylon would reign as, as the king of the earth, as the beast. But then we begin to see in Revelation 17, this harlot, this great harlot, who is called what? Mystery, Babylon the, the great. She's referred to it as well. But a harlot always, again, bringing back spiritually, biblically speaking, it always refers to spiritual adultery. This is a religious Babylon. This is spiritual Babylon, if you would. If you want to put all ALs at the end there, you've got political, spiritual, and commercial. And then finally, in chapter 18, you have commercial Babylon, where all the, the, the shipmasters are, are wailing and crying because Babylon the Great has fallen has fallen. Now, to go back to this spiritual one for a moment, we have seen all the way through this spiritual dynamic in the Babylons, in that the, the passing down of the kingdom. Interestingly enough, all the way from the, the nation of Egypt, carrying through Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, into Christianity, or the, the greater part of Christianity, there has been all the gods and goddesses that have been brought through. There is the queen of heaven. The queen of heaven um, in Christianity or in myth what I'm going to refer to as mythological Christianity, okay, and that's not to be rude, is Mary. Matriola, the, the Roman church teaches that Mary is the co-redemptress, that, that, that salvation comes through both Jesus and Mary. They refer to her as the queen of heaven, the mother of God, the one who gave birth to God. That comes from the, the mythology all the way back through back even into Egypt, where you have the, the birth of the gods. And so um, we've got to be careful um, because there is a resurgence of that as well. Again, as I said last week, I've been to the Vatican website. Um, I'm reading all about that. You know, one of the, the major things that is stopping the, the, the uni union of many of the religions right now is this concept of Mary. Okay, But the Vatican has now recently opened up its arms to disinfected Anglicans, okay? Anglicans who left the Anglican Church because of um, 
homosexuality, okay? So the Roman church has said, we'll receive you in. And we're going to make special exceptions um, because we know that your priests are married, and that's okay. They can, they can still perform ceremonies. It's just that they never can be cardinals, okay? And so theoretically, these Anglicans who are going by the droves now into the Roman church don't have to necessarily believe in matriola. They don't have to believe Mary is the, the mother of God, queen of heaven. However, what do you think will ha happen over a period of time as their children are raised in the Catholic Church? They'll begin to receive it, accept it. I am not a prophet nor a son of a prophet, but I know this historically, that the Roman Church has already been meeting with the Lutheran Church over the past couple decades, trying to figure out how they can bring Lutherans back into the communion. What just happened within the last month and a half, two months, in the Lutheran Church? Ordain and receive homosexuals. And there are many um, synods, many Lutherans who are now leaving the Lutherans. My mom and dad have, have left over this, and my, my sisters. Praise God, they're, they're, they're going to um, Hilltop Baptist and stuff like that. But, but the point is, I see the same thing going to be ready to happen in the Lutheran church as well. Those who are liturgical, those who want that form of a worship, will, will seek to go into the Catholic church. Now, do I believe that the Catholic church, the Roman church, is the harlot that we read about in Revelation? My answer is no. I don't. Again, that puts me totally opposite of, um, not opposite, but against some of um, dispensationalists. Why? I am a dispensationalist, but again, because they're interpreting it based upon the here and now, not what it will be. Can it be, might it be the Roman church? The answer is yes, potentially is. I think the Roman church was, was it during the Roman Empire? I don't mm -hmm. necessarily believe that it's it during the Empire of the United States, if, that, if my assumption is accurate there. I believe that it's Protestantism. I believe it's the United States theology. It's the United States spirituality. And people can say all they want about how we were built upon a Christian foundation, and, I, and I'm there. I know that many of them had a, had a fear of Christ, but most of them had a fear of God. And as we opened it up, I know this, I'm step on toes here, we established a nation not to be a Christian nation. We established a nation to be what? Free, to have freedom of religion. We, be, we set the foundation to be a pluralistic society. Now, that doesn't mean to get rid of Christianity. That's not that at all. I th you understand? I think that they, they misunderstand that, and they kick Christianity out. But the, it was established for this pluralistic society. I don't know if they ever envisioned the fact that other world religions would become so powerful. Does that make sense? Okay. But... Regardless of why the intent was, it doesn't matter. What it's what we have, okay? And if you look at our nation and the amalgamation of it, we have been a fost, uh, uh, we have fostered many false theologies in this country. We have put forth harlotries, adulteries throughout this land. Where do most prior to our time, right now, where do most missionaries, where had they come from? The United States, right? Who is filling the world with its form of religion? The United States. Now, it's not just for the sake of a Baptistic theology, but it's every shade that's out there. 
And when we go out there, we, we not only give them the gospel of Jesus Christ, we give them Western culture. We give them our, our commercial. We give them our political. We bring everything together and have everybody formed the way we are formed rather than having them be what? Who they are. Give them the gospel. That's what Paul did. Paul didn't worry about setting up politics. Paul didn't worry about setting up a commercial state. Paul gave them the gospel and let them be themselves. And, and he said, you need to support the Roman Empire that's above you. It's an amazing thing. So who is the religious Babylon? Well, I think, again, when I say Protestantism, I, I just mean the, what we see. I don't think the Roman Catholic Church has been the power that it was back in the Middle Ages. I don't see that it's it. Do you know who actually began really emphatically that um, the Ca Roman Catholic Church was Antichrist? If you were at your, if you were at your, um, your care group and saw all the, the films, you do. A man named Martin Luther, when he broke, when he broke from the Catholic Church, he, he declared it as, as, as Antichrist. And we have then traditionally just taken that and, and run with it. Okay? So what will it be during that day? I don't know. I do think, though, if it's based upon the things that I see today, strong indicator would be like the Baha'i faith. How many of you ever heard of Baha'i? See? Most people don't even know it, but it's out there, kind of behind the scenes. Baha'i brings together um, Muslims, Christians, and Jews. We all have one God. And so you go to the Baha'i Baha website, and it's amazing. I mean, I was at the Baha'i website when I didn't realize it. I just went there on one of my searches, and I was reading about Revelation and all this stuff. And it was literal. I mean, they were taking things literal. It was phenomenal. And then all of a sudden, it's like, it's like they pulled the blinds up and said, but here's what it means. And so there on the Baha'i faith, they're quoting the book of Revelation. They're teaching the Bible. But they're amalgamating it with Muslims and Judaism. You also have the, the New Age movement that's kind of out there with Gaia. Well, who is Gaia? The earth, but she is mother nature. She is the personification, if you would, today of the queen of heaven. It wouldn't surprise me to see a little Gaia thrown into the mix, you know, along with everything else. I don't know how they'll do all this, okay? But, but at that point, there will be a false religion that's there, one that seeks to supplant Christianity. And then finally, this commercial Babylon, I think that the Twin Towers falling was not the fulfillment of it. I think it was a precursor of it. I think as we saw what happened in the aftermath of those two, I mean, think about it. What, what is the, at, th at this moment and at that, at that moment, what would have been the major um, port city of the world? New York. New York. I mean, the, the import-export going on there is incredible. It's where the world's finances really are, are, are focused. I mean, I know that there's some place over in Europe, but the reality is that whatever happens to the stock market in the United States has a, triggers what? Worldwide effects. When, that, when those two powers fell, nations around the world had a day of silence. March's dad was in, in Ireland. They were with a poor group. How many restaurants were open in Ireland? Nothing. What about the United States? They were all open. But over in Ireland, everything was shut down. They had a, their, their tour director had to go 
and, and, and get somebody to put together a little bit of food for these Americans who wanted to eat while everybody else in Ireland were fasting. <laughs> it's a sad thing, isn't it? It had that kind of effect. Now, again, as I'm, I don't think that was Babylon the Great has fallen and fallen in Revelation chapter 18. Clearly, that's not it. However, it gives us a picture, a small picture of what it could be like when this fulfillment happens. When all the world who is focused on their materialism, focused on getting a little bit more, sees the source of all that collapsing. And they say Babylon the Great is fallen, has fallen. So, how can Babylon be restored? I don't know. But honestly, just from Bob's conjecturing, um, if there is a World War III, if there is a major catastrophic thing, if the United States very clearly is, what do you call it, minimized in all this, what would be a great way for a new world leader to unify the the, the world to establish a new capital, world capital. And it makes sense based upon biblical prophecy and biblical history that the center of a one world government will be back to where it all began with Nimrod. And that is at Babel. Now, in the midst of all that then, as we look at this Babylon and um, the system, we're told in Revelation 18, it says, come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, unless you receive of her plagues. Now, clearly, I don't believe I'll be there. However, I think the, the application applies to me today. Last week, we read as well from 2 Corinthians 6, down to se- um, 14 down to 7, 1, where it says um, very clearly, we're told, what, what part has Christ with Belial? What part has a believer with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? He says, therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. And he says, therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and perfecting holiness in the fear of God. If Babylon is the fulfillment of all that the world has to offer, politically, spiritually, and commercially, I am called to be a part in that. To change the way I think. To repent. And so I ask you, politically, you think like the world politically I, I just I can't get over the people who are mouthpieces of Rush Limbaugh and Neil Bortz and Michael Reagan and all these other people that they hear on the radio now that's on the conservative side I could go to the, the liberal side as well but who are not looking to the Bible for their analysis of politics but rather they're looking at men or who, who spout off spiritual things from the way the world's perspective is with relative truth and all these kind of things and what's important to me and it's, it's true to me and it feels good to me and all this. That's the way the world thinks spiritually. That's the way they're filling their void. And then commercially as well, how, how do we handle things commercially? You know, and that is that, again, as we talked about in Sunday school, that it's all mine. God gave it to me, right? And I just give God a a tip, rather than the fact that everything that God gives me is his, and maybe God's just giving me a tip to help me out. And so we need to change the way we think. Let's not think like the Babylons. Romans, Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, 
that we must not conform ourselves to the world, but rather to be transformed in the renewing of our mind. And so as we look forward to these days occurring, hopefully we won't be there. It's years, years to come from now. We need to live the application of it today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace and your mercy. I thank you for your word. It's true. It's quick. It's powerful. It's sharper than a scissor sword. And Lord, we know that there's so much out there that is yet to be and that we can't be dogmatic about. But Lord, we see evidence as well of how you have been working and are working in this world. And Lord, I do see evidence of your soon return. Lord, we don't know the day or the hour, but you've said that it will be like a woman um, when a woman is in labor and that we will see the beginnings of the birth signs, Lord, and we see them. Lord, we see evil beginning to abound. We see the love of many waxing cold. We see the, the increase of earthquakes and pestilence and famines. Lord, we see nations rising up against nations. And yet, Lord, I know that that has been occurring over the years, but yet we see as well as, as Daniel has stated that many are running to and fro and that information is abounding. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be those who are of the day and, and not of the night. Help us, Lord, to, to live with soberness. Help us to live uh, in the, with the gravity of, of, the, of the age. And Lord, help us to, to live as well of, as lights in this world, seeking to, to point others towards you for your glory, not our own. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we... Um,